Hello and welcome to a new retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial, hosted in association with the investment magazine, Professional Planner, and our media and event partner, the Financial Planning Association of Australia. My name is Alex Promos and I'm the head of institutional content and investment magazine. Along with my colleagues, Lawrence Parker-Brown and Matthew Smith, we spent the past five months curating content focused on the most pertinent issues in retirement for both institutional and retail fiduciaries. Since Paul Keating first steered the superannuation guarantee into law in 1992, Australia has been recognised for its accumulation or defined contribution system. However, when it comes to the meeting the needs of retirees, such as delivering advice, determining an appropriate investment strategy and navigating a dignified retirement, Australia has a lot to learn. This podcast series offers exclusive access to conversations with thought leaders in the retirement sector as they discuss ways to improve the system. I hope you enjoy the podcast series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Podcast Series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and today I'm joined uh, by uh, Amara Hakani, who's the uh, Director of Insights and Strategies at Milliman. Welcome. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. So I guess this is a, an interesting podcast uh, in the sense that you know, you've been in the retirement space really for the last sort of five to 10 years in terms of different adaptations, working at, uh, at Milliman and Challenger and FSC. Um, I thought maybe the best place to start is is a comment that you've made on your LinkedIn, which is a fresh way to think about retirement savings. And given that this is a retirement podcast, what, what does that mean to you? Sure. Um, I'm actually, I've actually been waiting for someone to ask me that for quite a while. So thank you. Um, I, I think, um, for me, the fresh way is, believe it or not, to not think about products. We're so product-led, we're so uh, supply-led in this industry, and I really strive to have a think about it from the consumer standpoint, and not necessarily the member standpoint, but kind of more overarching than that. Uh, we know from other industries that they are way more consumer-focused than we are, and I do my best to bring that fresh thinking to whatever it is that I do uh, in the retirement income and retirement space uh, last years. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one because all the super funds claim to be about their members. But when you look at some of the things that they do and their focuses, you know, particularly around fees and and. Uh, Looking at building out internal teams that they that they run, the advertising they run. There's a lot of questions that have been raised, really, about you know how member focused are they? Um, you know, and, and I guess my question to you is really what what do they need to do to actually put the member back at the center of of where they should be? You know, versus the product and the fund and their their business model. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think what you've just said is key, and I, I talk a lot about the industry as having its Copernicus moment. So we, it behoves us to stand up and say, you know what, the product, the vehicle, the offering is not the uh, the solution, as it were. And we put that at the at the centre of our industry, we, our distribution chains, our our value propositions, the way that we talk to the member, the customer, regardless of where we're at in the industry, but particularly in member, is very much about what it is that we sell. And uh, someone in the industry told me a long time ago that we like to make things that we want to sell, not that people want to buy. And I think that's very true for financial services as a whole, but it really comes to a key um, 
point here for retirement savings and particularly in a compulsory environment where all of a sudden we get lazy about the fact that we have this compulsory stream of money, we know that we can manage it the way that we've always managed it and we rely on this notion that people are largely disengaged and it's largely for the long term. So even though we think we might know our members on one hand, I think the average member may not feel very known. And so that's very much the key is I think it's, you know, the industry is very much talking itself. It decides amongst itself what constitutes engagement. It, constitu- it decides amongst itself what's important and it's taken upon itself some form of paternalism and ideology about it being the people that stands for the members in some aspects of the industry. Uh, and even from an advice standpoint, it's kind of almost the same. The advisor represents the person that they've actually been giving advice to. So meanwhile, out on the street, the, the form of disengagement is not lack of knowledge of financial literacy all the time. It's basically that people don't feel like they're being spoken to. I think the current crisis has been very interesting. As far as I can tell, uh, super funds have been largely silent. There's not been really leadership shown in the way that a lot of other fund, a lot of other industries have shown. And I've had more communication, quite frankly, from my local spa, my local pub, my local restaurant than I have from my super fund. And when I talk around to other people, they certainly feel the same way. So that's pretty much that's pretty much where we're heading. Is that Copernicus moment and maybe the crisis. I mean, I, I've been saying the Copernicus moment for the last six months to a year, particularly at the post World Commission. But I think the Copernicus moment is now uh, with the coronavirus crisis in that now is the opportunity to put the member at the centre of the universe and not the product. Yeah, look, I think that's that's really um, almost a, a combination of so many factors that creates a perfect storm for an industry Absolutely. that many people, I think, have seen the industry as laggards, um, but the industry's been allowed to get away with it because they've been really tailing off the back of this 10-year bull run where returns have looked good. So they've sort of been able to deviate, you know, I think a lot of the attention about what they're really responsible for because they can still keep generating returns. Um, But nothing shakes a a system up more than losses and potential risks. Um, And this financial and health crisis at the same time is really starting to uncover, you know, a lot of hidden problems that everybody knew, but now the yeah. pressure is back on. And even a lot of APRA, uh, you know, their work that they've done, even around the heat map, never really got to the serious problems, which is really what super is supposed to be and focusing on the member. Um, and so my question, I guess, to you is, you know, what, what needs to be done, I guess, in terms of you know, transparency, at least as a first point of call, um, what you raise in terms of, you know, getting more information about what's happening. I, I agree with you in terms of you know, the communication from funds I've received, basically nil um, in terms of details of, of what they're doing and and, um, and 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 how they're looking to approach it. And and most of the other conversations are very, uh, you know, very generalist style conversations. Stay the course, don't withdraw your money, um, which is it seems a little bit uh, you know facetious. I think in some in some parts in how they how they talk about it. Um, and and some of it's condescending almost, I, I find. I mean, going back to your point of transparency, so um, having spent some time overseas, I think it, it, 
it's very interesting to see what you can um, compare this environment with in, and up to other ones. The, the big one, and so this, these are more, uh, interestingly, they're more general funds management concepts, uh, and when you consider that super is nothing but a tax wrapper around the funds management industry, uh, it generally holds true. So for me, there are, there are a couple of, there are two big things I think that are noticeable. One is that we are one of, I think, one or two jurisdictions, and I think Morningstar will confirm this, uh, that doesn't, um, doesn't do portfolio holdings disclosure. We're, only, we're also one of the few jurisdictions I'm aware of, um, particularly in the English-speaking world, that doesn't have investment restrictions for retail clients or retail portfolios. And to me, I think the two are very much linked. So it went in, in the super environment, in a defined contribution environment, where that gets interesting is I, I absolutely think that other jurisdictions would be quite gobsmacked at the fact that, in effect, a lot of our super funds are run like absolute return funds. Uh, and you know, our notion of what a balanced fund is isn't particularly balanced the way that other jurisdictions would call them or what general investment 101 might call them. And that's also, a, that bumps up against the notion of member wearing investment risk. So then, then you have this further um, lack of transparency in that not only do we have the environment where uh, things available to retail investors, be it via super or not, um, can be whatever the investment manager feels it can be. But on, on top of that, they're not required to disclose anything. So there's no transparent culture of holdings. And as a result, there's far less accountability to the end retail client as investment professionals in the space relative to other jurisdictions. Uh, and I think what ends up happening there is that retail clients get told rather condescendingly in some respects that, oh, don't worry, you know, don't you worry a little head. We're the experts. We know what we're doing. You've left your money with us and, you know, you can sleep well at night. Again, this all comes out in a crisis of um, how much of that has really held true and how much should going forward investment professionals, within whether or not they're in super, should actually work towards that level of transparency. It's an interesting one because some of the funds, you know, they talk a lot about member engagement, member engagement. It's one of those sort of throwaway terms that's constantly, you know, put out there that the funds are working on. But you would think that portfolio disclosure, more transparency about what they're doing would be part of that engagement. But then on the flip side, then they don't want to have, you know, uh, members checking their, their NAV and their balances every single, you know, day or every week. So they've got a bit of a tricky situation where they're trying to tell people this is you know, your money for retirement, but at the same time, you need to be engaged all the time. Sure. And I, look, and here's the thing, right? We confuse engagement, the concept of engagement in this industry. We confuse it with financial literacy. We confuse it with marketing um, metrics, such as, you know, how many times people have been on a website and that kind of thing. I do think the good funds actually do know their members. They do understand them. Um, there are certain sectoral funds that have the ability to do that by virtue um, of the sorts of members they have. So that makes things easier for them, for sure. However, shoe on the other foot, um, one of the things I've realised in the last few weeks with um, the early access um, to super uh, 
and the work that I've been doing on that is is very much talking to people at the coalface, uh, people that have been affected by all of this in terms of what do they think of their super and what do they think of their early release. And what's um, really useful, I think, for industry people to understand is this conflation we have between financial literacy and engagement needs to actually stop. There are many people that understand super enough to know what it's for. Those that it, When you're in your 20s and 30s, that's arguably all you need to do. Um, you need to understand what it's for. And I think that uh, people understand super at that grassroots level. People understand what super is for a whole lot more than we give them credit for. Now, are they looking at their balance a lot? Probably not. Do they actually consolidate their accounts? Probably not. Do they know that they have to? I think that message is getting through and I think that they understand some really basic things like super is for retirement, super is for the long term. Those that will go through early access this year, I really do believe, based on the conversations I've had so, you know, with a lot of people that you would think wouldn't necessarily understand this stuff, are not in the industry, are in low-paying jobs, all of that kind of stuff, they know what super is for. They're not looking forward to having to access it now during the times of the crisis, but they also know it's a rainy day and this is the rainy day that you save money for. They're hoping that they can put money back in. They're hoping that they can make it up later on down the track because I quote from somebody that said to me yesterday, I'm really, but what else is super for except for retirement? And I, to be honest with you, shed a little bit of a tear and went, wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this, but it is really, it's really fascinating to see um, we really do need to, to change our assumption of what engagement really means for the industry. I guess, I guess the question really becomes you know, in terms of engagement, and I know that superannuation has always been thrown around as another sort of way to create nation building style of activities. You know, is is that a part that's maybe missing for for a lot of super funds in terms of maybe you know more ownership of of infrastructure more directly and talking about what they do? I know we've got you know joint ventures between super funds that can go and invest with IFM, for example, in particular projects and so forth. But but do members maybe need something that's a bit more tangible to actually understand what they're investing in to help build the engagement? Um, not necessarily. I think there is um. Uh, to be honest with you, I've not had that conversation with people. But, you know, there are, there are funds that have been very um, transparent about what they own and, and, you know, you go into certain office buildings and you can see it's owned by a super fund or, you know, larger infrastructure projects which are clearly owned by a super fund. And, and that kind of branding and messaging I think has gotten through in general. Um, I think that's very much, that goes back to a values thing with members where certain members would value that more than others and certain parts of the industry have really um, cottoned on to the value proposition aspect of super and we've seen that with some of the startups funds in recent years. We've, again, speaking of conflation, we've conflated that with ESG or with, um, you know, funds that are going particularly down a path. But value systems aren't necessarily just about the things that we've seen, such as ESG. Value systems are also about where is my money going? Is that even important to me to find out? Am I happy to leave it to the experts? No, I want to know more. 
Um, there is definitely a, um, I think we generally understand this as an industry now, but it is not as cut and dry as the people that don't care go into my super, the people that do care on the other end of the extreme always end up in an SMSF. The, the reality is we, we exist on a continuum as members, all of us, myself included, um, all of us exist on a continuum of engagement and a continuum of values. And those are the sorts of things that as we progress this understanding of putting the member at the centre of, of our industry, that we understand that continuum better and we come in and out of understanding those values. I guess, you know, one of the ways to also get people really engaged is when they see that their balance has gone up. This this recent uh, market event, you know, financial market event is going to have a significant impact on a number of people, superannuation balances, um, particularly if you've, you've lost a job. You know, I guess in terms of superannuation, looking, you know, looking forward, you know, is, is there going to be more questions about superannuation and how it sort of matches up with the sort of the way people are working, particularly the younger people you know, that are more in the geek style economy, more contract style work? Um, you know, how, how do you see that sort of playing out? Sure. I, I, I think, well, put it this way, the, um, we've talked a lot about black swan events since the GFC and I think the true black swan that hit this industry with this crisis was um, not about the things we thought would it would exist um, coming into a crisis. We knew there was a lot of conversation uh, about risk in the system, about the level of un unlisted assets, and about fees and returns, all that kind of stuff, um, but not whether... Um, I think the big thing that's happened is that we didn't realise that where entire sectors of employment get wiped, that it causes the uh, associated super fund to go down with it. Uh, that nexus between employment and super, which we've talked about for the last few years, particularly in light of, as you say, the gig economy um, and, and its rise over, say, the last three or four years, which has been this conversation, we have mentioned this a lot about the, the nexus needing to possibly be removed. But this really exacerbates it because it's not just a nexus of employment and retirement savings in general, but it's specific employment with specific super funds um, that, that has, really, has really come to the fore this week. And I think that was gen genuinely the black swan event is we didn't realise, we, we had this notion of compulsory, compulsory super has this constant inflow of money and therefore liquidity is not an issue and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the, the confluence of events was that employment itself has been called into question across entire sectors of employment, which, which is huge. Now, going forward... Um, what does that look like for retirement savings? Does it mean, you know, that on one hand, I think the average person does understand they need retirement savings a lot more than they would have at the inception of super 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. Um, so the average person now understands what super's for. Um, more and more of that casualization and that gig economy will continue to happen, um, I'm sure, after this crisis has come to an end. So, yeah, I, I think we are staring down the barrel of very much seeing that play out of the, the removal of the nexus between how much you work and how much you save for your retirement. 
It's interesting in the sense that a lot of people, you know, there's, there's, there. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but there is a part of the of the crowd out there that is really anti-super, and we see that in some of the mainstream media, you know, that really sort of sees superannuation as almost a type of theft from people's wages. You know? <laughs> yes. How, how how do we how do we talk about you know trying to change that mentality? Because we know that people, if they're given the money, you know, and if the superannuation guarantee can't survive, which is you know. A potential in this in this current environment, or at least goes on a pause. You know how how do we, how does the industry need to work to actually make sure that there is more discussion about you know SG as a as something that is long term and is beneficial to people. Um, and and I and I mentioned that at the same time when there's the same. I know this is two parts style question, but there's also the investment challenge of actually earning enough money from your super. So even if you save through a lifetime, can you reach, you know, a suitable amount of money to actually pay for your life versus just getting the pension? So it's a really difficult one where people feel that I don't want to pay into super because I'll still get the pension of $30,000 tax-free a year. And for me, this has always been a difficult, you know, difficult situation because if I think about it, to be able to earn $30,000 tax-free, I'm going to have to put up probably a million dollars a year. Oh, sorry, a million dollars as a as a pool of money, you know, if I'm a pensioner and I invested in some risk-free assets and I get 3%, you know, net of net of uh, fees and net of taxes. Now, it just seems a little bit hard, I think, for, for a lot of people to grasp that. And I don't know if there's enough conversation about making, you know, making super relevant for people and feeling that it is something that's achievable. You know, I guess, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, going going to your first point, um, certainly um, in certain circles in the last couple of weeks, particularly, um, and not necessarily people within the industry, but people adjacent to the industry, as it were, um, there has been a lot of conversation about the relevance for SG. Uh, some of it goes to very old school politics about who deserves retirement savings. I think um, if you look at conservative style thinking it is very much you know there is a safety net for people that um, would otherwise not need to worry about retirement savings so why does there need to be an an element of universality i think um i go back to that notion that the experiments worked in that the funny thing that happened in the late 80s early 90s with the advent of sg was that it effectively democratized retirement savings So I go back to the notion that where I speak to the average person on the street on the call face, they all understand what super is in a way that's completely different to it just being a thing that my mining manager dad got in the 1980s. And I strongly remember him telling me what superannuation was and I would have been that big. So um, maybe that has something to do with why I'm in the industry now. But I... um, it's really interesting to to put that to turn it on its head. So, um, I think the government needs to remember that, um, or the government needs to be careful, and not just government but policymakers in general, assuming that that this is ideology. I don't think that the average person on the street cares about the ideology. I don't think that the ideology that's that's really um, been quite subvert, well, it hasn't even been subversive. It's been quite blatant um, in this industry for its entire existence. 
I don't think that that needs to be confused with what I'm talking about because I certainly don't subscribe to a world, especially someone young coming up through the system, I don't subscribe to a world where ideology should ever be mixed with the financial system, quite frankly. Um, for me, it's instead it's about what real people actually are used to now. So um, I'm in a world where I go to my hairdresser, and I mentioned this before, but I'm Moonlight as a makeup artist, so I have a whole other world in my in my existence where I don't talk about super at all. But I was, you know, I'm with my 23-year-old hairdresser who's from Penrith, and he asks me, oh, you, do you think I should put more money in my super? Really grassroots conversations like that that I have all the time with people coming up, no super as part of their existence. To me, if super is killed, um, and it's one thing for it to go on a temporary holiday and all those sorts of conversations, but I think over the medium term, if we actually decide that super is killed or the guarantee, the super guarantee or the compulsory aspect of super is killed, I do actually believe there will be pitchforks in the street by ordinary people, young people who don't know life without it. They, they assume that at some point there will be retirement savings in their financial um, planning, their own financial planning future. So I think that that should definitely be not be lost um, on anybody talking about these things. And it's, it's, um, it, it's, actually quite confronting it's confronting that it's much more a, a part of our psyche it's a it, because the 30-year experiment worked the democratization of superannuation worked now that doesn't mean that the system can't be or shouldn't be improved and you know i, I turned to my former boss and um who you know jeremy cooper who would always joke about the fact that what would happen if you turn the super cap off and, you know, I would, I would come in on the back of that and say, yes, it would be a bit like Warren Buffett's whole swimming, you get, get to figure out who's swimming naked. It, it is very much that where turning the SG tap off could do good things to this industry. But over the medium term, I don't think, I think it will help us get the things that aren't working right because it will force us to be like other industries and be more consumer-led. Uh, we will have to, we will have to, be a lot more commercial in our thinking. The, the very notion of how this public-private partnership has played out um, hasn't been great. There's been a lot of fat in the system, all of that kind of stuff. Turning the SG tap off even temporarily would actually help those things. But I don't think over the longer period of time, even those people that we think are anti-retirement are not actually anti-super, I might add. I think a lot of that is probably media hype. I think in general people think that people should have retirement savings. It's just the nature of how the system works. And that is something I think will be an ongoing discussion towards the end and after this crisis. Can I add a, a little curveball into that? And that is that there is a whole group of baby boomers that are coming up to retirement. Their superannuation, they're sitting on the side. Uh, and these people mostly own their own house outright. Then if you look to the next group down or the next sort of two two rungs down, which is the millennials that still feel that they're struggling um, to, to get their own place and to pay their own place, got quite a small amount of superannuation on the side. You know, and then you look the next group down that's got their super. You know, is there, is there a bit of a, a, a tension that's going to start to come out, do you think, in terms of what superannuation is versus people that are much older than, you know, you talk about a 23-year-old hairdresser that, that you know in Penrith, I guess 
for people like them, yes, they want their super, but I guess where, how do you think about the equity and fairness of, of some people that have got the super, but then they've also been able to really take advantage of a lot cheaper housing at the time um, and you know, they're, they're, they're trying to wrestle between saving enough you know, from their super to be able to pay for their life, but then they realize they may end up only having to rent for the rest of their life as well, and then that's a big challenge for them. Yeah, sure. I I, I would um I I feel very um in in the middle of a crisis. I feel very unable to answer that question for the main thing, which is that I think before the end of this crisis, I think many of those baby boomers are going to be hurt in a lot of different ways. Um, I just read today about the you know the landlord renter crisis, and I, I'm sure that's going to hit a lot of baby boomers with investment properties. Um, we are in the middle of a very large sequencing risk event. <laughs> mm. um, we don't know what baby boomers are going to look like, especially the younger baby boomers look like um, after the end of this crisis. So the intergenerational conversation we've been having for the last few years about what baby boomers have gotten and how lucky they've had it and how millennials are doing it tough, I think this, if this crisis is a massive reset on that conversation. Um, we don't know who's got it well and who doesn't have it well yet. Um, we don't know how many baby boomers are going to be suffering the, the, both the health crisis and the economic crisis. If, um, I'm, I feel very um, upset, actually, to say that that is the sad reality we're facing. Um, and when this, when all the dust settles, I don't know what we're going to be saying about who is better off than who. And we still don't know, you know, all the tertiary events that have yet to play out about where the housing market will go, whether or not. I actually had one of these grassroots conversations I was having a couple of days ago was on this very notion because somebody who was a teacher that I know in Melbourne was asking me if she thought, if I thought that um, property might be affordable for her now. And I said, I have no idea. I, I, I don't, I, I couldn't tell you for sure. I mean, we know that property is a lagging indicator. We know that it has yet to play out. But the reality is, is that who knows? I mean, generally would property, when property is not doing so well, that's against a backdrop of a whole raft of things that we are already not playing out, such as unemployment. Um, so... Yeah, I would almost want to put pause on that question, Alex, and we, maybe we can talk about it in a this time and see what we can then. <laughs> no, look, I, that's fine, and, and it's an interesting one because it's funny. Like I, I feel there's been a change of the guards in terms of super with this early release, and you know the current conservative government, I think, has been you know pretty pretty anti super, or at least trying to merge it and try to reduce the the uh, union influence. Uh, and the early release sort of seems to be breaking that sacrosanct style, you know, thinking about super. And the government's also been very keen to promote housing. And so I, I sort of worry that they've sort of started down the track where you can withdraw money from your super to pay for your, you know, your living costs and your health insurance and your mortgage, which is fine. And I think, you know, people sort of can say, okay, I get, I get that. But is the next stage this potentially? Oh no, you can also withdraw fifty thousand dollars for a house deposit because the housing market's gone down twenty or thirty percent, and so that's what sort of bothers me when I sort of think about it holistically. You sort of break that notional uh, value around super, where it was seen to be sort of this you know this golden pot you just don't touch. 
um, and now it's sort of been raided. And so I, I worry about a broader conversation that, that may then come from that. Yeah, and, and certainly that's been discussed a lot in the last week uh, with the early release measures and the you know, a portion of the industry really was pushing hard for the notion that rather than having people physically withdraw money from their super accounts, that instead we operate a liquidity facility of sorts, um, not of sorts, but, but that we, we engineer a solution whereby um, the government would would pay that superannuation via the ATO to the member and that instead a bond um, that the super funds would invest in um, would, would effectively make it so that super was collateral against that payment rather than the actual liquidation of anything in super itself. Now, unfortunately, that didn't really go, um, well, the government had different designs and I think... It, that, 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 whole, that whole idea was very much predicated on the notion that super, while, you know, while it's common sense um, and, and perfectly pragmatic to say that super both at the system level and at the individual member level needs to be there for people during a crisis, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that people have to sell down their super or withdraw money from the system in order for that to happen. So um, I definitely see a point because I think if you open it, you open it up now, and you know what else do you open it up for, um, and where where does it stop? Well, so, but again, I go back to what I really have noticed that the average person does understand that it's for retirement savings. The people that do want to take the money out don't want to take it out. They understand that maybe they it would be really good for them to be able to put money back in. So I have a lot more faith than I used to, and I didn't have any, <laughs> I had a lot more faith than I used to that um, people will, when, when something like this is taken away from them, they'll actually be a lot more, um, pardon the use of the word, but more, a lot more engaged in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the government, again, needs to take notice. I'm curious, we go back at the start, you said you'd done some work overseas. What have you seen overseas in terms of superannuation funds and retirement systems that we could um, potentially learn from in terms of you know, more efficient maybe use of capital, better engagement, you know, better maybe nation building that comes from it? Is there anything that you could, you could uh, see that we should, we should, we're missing in the Australian environment? Um. I, um, to be honest with you, I, I think um, it's it's not the retirement systems themselves. I, I mean, I was fortunate enough to work for um, work for a very large institution in North America, so I saw the pension systems there um, at close quarters. But I think um, the running of a pension system is only as good as the running of the investment system that sits behind it. Um, and one of the key um, one of the key things that I learned over there was actually conflicts of interest management um, and market integrity in the pension environment. And um, uh, conflicts of interest is just not something that's understood well here at all. And it, I think a lot of it's cultural. I think Australians operate under a she'll be right kind of mentality. It, I, I would bet my bottom dollar that a lot of people don't. No, say the ASX market integrity rules, for example, 
Um, and even the recent Royal Commission uh, really um, honed in on, uh, maybe for political reasons, but honed in on the, um, the, the front end, what I call the front end, so the consumer facing, the conduct at the front end. But one of the things I think that was completely perhaps overlooked was that um, the front end, be it you know wealth wealth firms in general, so advice firms, superannuation funds, um, etc., are only ever culture takers. They're, they're not culture makers. That culture actually exists further up the value chain in investment banking and capital markets, and that conduct was never really scrutinised. Um, in other parts of the world, that understanding of conduct and conflicts is. Um, implemented and managed throughout the value chain and not just at the customer-facing end. And I think until we actually understand how that value chain works and how all of those moving pieces, moving, how the, all those puzzle pieces actually sit together, um, we're probably going to come up against things like that again and again and, and you know, future oil commissions honing in on similar sort of topics. Would, would that also include the internalization of a number of teams at superannuation funds in terms of, you know, the potential? That's a tricky one. <laughs> That's a very tricky one. And I think, uh, I mean, I would go so far as to say the buy side generally is a culture taker off the sell side. Mm. Um, that deal-making culture and that really short-termist transaction culture um, is just not called into, it's just not called into question and there's no scrutiny on it. In part because there hasn't had to be because it's a kind of a caveat emperor. Everyone's in it for themselves. It's big boy business, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is is that on the buy side when that sorts and where this gets interesting is actually that's all how the unlisted assets world plays out as well, right? A lot of that's a deal and transaction culture that's permeated the buy side. Um, that is the kind of thing that then, yeah, sure plays out in an internalisation world for super. A lot of those people, you know, a lot of the people that have um, been, a lot of the people that are in super funds now, um, particularly in internalised teams, have worked elsewhere. Um, they've, they've cut their teeth elsewhere. They've, they've seen that culture. And that culture has not been called into question by regulators or other people that actually see what's going on. So it's it's assumed that that's okay. Um, and I think over a period of time, I, I go back to the transparency thing. As we work to a more transparent consumer-led um, industry, all of these things are going to come out in the wash. I think certain things like um, the recent bear and associated um, regulatory um actions to try and get executive accountability, which are, I don't know where that will go during and after this crisis, but um, all of that in general speaks to a, a, an attempt to understand what goes on under the hood. But I think if we wanted to be much more customer-led, we wouldn't need a regulator to do that for us. We'd be happy to do that ourselves and, 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 and show people how things work and how things are done. I got to add in, you know, what 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 risk do you think that the choice system in superannuation has in, you know, what part does it play in all this, you know, in terms of performance and chasing chasing returns and and sort of that culture that you're talking about? 
the choice system. See, I uh, I must admit I don't differentiate, um, if only because uh, I think um, that's been a quick differentiation that we've done about the default and choice system. But under the hood, um, those things are very similar. There are people in the default environment that have chosen to be there. Um, there are people in the choice environment um, who have been advised into that um, world. So they've chosen their advisor, but they haven't necessarily, um, not that they haven't chosen that world, but they've, um, they've relied on a third party to tell them what to do. So um, I'm, not, I'm not really, I, I must admit, I'm not really sure what you mean by that specific question. I mean, I mean the the flexibility of people to change super funds so quickly, right? You, we're having this, this choice system where it's open, right? It's open sure. offer. Everyone can potentially move um, with, with very minimal change. And so it sort of starts to, to drive, and my question is, does it drive the wrong sort of mentality within the super funds because of the need to be so competitive because they're continually worried about choice and people's ability to, to move funds so quickly? Yeah, sure. And it is, it's a tricky one because, you know, and that's that whole private public system um, that super has found itself being in that, you know, on one hand it's compulsory and on the other, on the other hand people can go where they please um, in certain aspects. I, I think that um, we get scared of member behaviour because we don't understand it. And I don't think that that movement culture that we talk about is anywhere near as much there as we think it is. Um, and a lot of it comes back to the short-termist, you know, looking at the last quarter of performance and looking at it. A, a lot of that's where that comes from. Uh, I, I think if we were thinking long-term, we were educating members long-term, we, as an industry, behaved more long-term and we were less frenetic about these short-term movements, I think it would matter less over a period of time. And I think it's much less likely that people um, are just going to move at the drop of a hat because uh, they saw in a quarterly investment performance league table that they should. Um, if, for instance, we did 5 and 10 and 15, 20-year performance, perhaps people would be less likely to move in the choice environment, I feel. Mm -hmm. Last question, hopefully an easy one. Uh, what's your view on on sort of the advice system with, with, with respect to superannuation? There's been a lot of debate about whether, you know, monies from from the superannuation can be can can go to advice. A number of funds are... Uh, you know, taking advantage of intra-fund advice that, that they can give, but then they can't give anything else with their superannuation money. What's your, what's your thoughts there? Uh, the, the longer I spend in retirement income particularly, the more I, I say that retirement is nothing more than advice, really. Uh, being that retirement is a problem of one, uh, therefore, in order to understand that problem, you do actually need advice. I think um, my hope is that over a period of time we disband certain notions of what advice actually even is. Um, to me, the term financial product advice is an oxymoron. Um, you either sell financial products or you give advice, uh, and many other jurisdictions do actually look at it this way, and we have unfortunately found ourselves in a post-SR world where we look at things slightly differently here. In that vein, um, should 
should people pay for advice out of this super? I'm not sure. Instead, the question I want answered is, should people be allowed to access information? Should they be allowed to get advice without reference to a product? Should they um, be able to um, get what they need? And in general, if they want a product sold to them and not to um, degrade what or denigrate what we do with super, but that is fundamentally in the advice context, the sale of product. Um, are we happy to admit when we are just selling product to a member or to a, to a um, client in, in the other world um, or not? So I think until we answer those questions, I'm not sure we can entirely answer whether or not super like people should pay for advice from the super fund all right um well that's all the time we have for today thank you very much amara for your time thank you for having me